there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. We've been talking about a living sacrifice, the fact that the difference between one who has committed himself to Jesus Christ and one who has not should be a radical, visible distinction. And as I travel around, I find that there isn't nearly enough of a difference. I find Christians responding in the ways that the world does. I find Christian magazines filled with Secular thinking that people are not even aware is secular because we get so squeezed into the world's mold. And in Philip's translation of this passage, which we've taken for our text, Romans 12, 1 and 2, in verse 2, in the, the King James Version says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And J.B. Phillips puts it this way, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. We're talking about a complete renovation. You've got to turn yourself in, turn yourself completely over to Jesus Christ, making an unconditional sacrifice. That's what this Christian life is all about. It's not a little dollop of whipped cream on the top of the Sunday of your life. It's not a mere addition of something nice. It is a totally different course which you are choosing. The scripture uses the analogy of marriage because you've been single all your life up until the point where you make a radical choice to change your entire lifestyle and become a married person, a husband or a wife. And it's not for nothing that God has used that simile because we married people could tell you single folks that think that marriage is the solution to all your problems that the truth is you really don't know what you're getting into. How many of you married people knew exactly what you were getting into? You know, this person that you think of as a prize package turns out to be a surprise package. <laughs> and the great thing about discipleship is God does not give you a blueprint ahead of time to tell you everything that's going to happen, what the cost is going to be, but he does say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And I am going to walk with you if you will come with me. If you want to be my disciple, he said, you must give up your right to yourself. You must take up your cross. And you must follow me. I talked last night about expendability, disposability. That means giving up your right to yourself, doesn't it? It means turning over all the rights forever, unconditionally, to Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, here I am, all of me for you forever. Do anything you want with me. Absolutely anything. It's giving Jesus Christ a blank sheet of paper with your name already signed at the bottom. Here it is, Lord. You fill it in. You don't give him a list of your conditions under which you will be willing to serve him 
or the kind of thing that you want to do for him, you let him do the disposing. Now, what is God's standard for a Christian? He doesn't say, I want you to try harder. I want you to do better. I want you to try to be gooder. He says, be perfect. Be holy. There isn't any other standard. The standard is 100% perfection. May I see the hands of those of you who have arrived? You know that song, uh, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Be perfect. That is his standard. Now, what does the word holy mean? It doesn't have the connotations in the Old Testament that we've loaded it with in the New Testament in our since the New Testament times, we've added a whole lot of ideas of our own as to what holiness means. But in the Old Testament, the word simply meant set apart. The vessels of the tabernacle were holy vessels. That doesn't mean they were made out of different kind of material. Some of them were brass and some of them were gold, but it was ordinary brass and ordinary gold, like any other things that are made of brass and gold. But what it was that made those vessels holy was that they were set apart for God set apart for the use of the tabernacle. And that is what makes you and me holy. When we come to Jesus Christ and turn over the rights to him, we are then set apart. And God has to continually remold our minds from within so that we can start moving in the direction of his will. It is a radical, deep-down kind of a difference. Do you know what the word radical comes from? It comes from a word from which we also get the word radish. It means root. It means a deep down, deep rooted, totally different kind of a life. A radical difference. A difference at the roots. And I think when we see people who have professed to be Christians, who begin to act like the devil, the chances are very good that That person's Christianity was a superficial thing. They didn't have that deep taproot that goes way down to the very bottom of their souls, their hearts, their lives. I want to read a verse from 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, and I'm delighted to see that quite a few of you are note takers, and so I'm going to help you with that. I've got two points for this first talk. Uh, The title of the talk is Set Apart. The crucial text is 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15. And then I will tell you what point one is. This is all by way of introduction. As obedient children, do not let your characters be shaped any longer by the desires you cherished in your days of ignorance. The one who called you is holy. Like him, be holy in all your behavior, because scripture says you shall be holy, for I am holy. I like this translation. It happens to be the New English Bible. Whatever you have is probably very good, too. But the reference is 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15. And I like what he says. Don't let your characters be shaped any longer by the desires you cherished in your days of ignorance. And one of the radical differences between us and the rest of the world, is that we have a totally different set of desires. I saw one of the differences, very evident here this morning, gladness. Christians have 
a daily reason to be glad, no matter what is happening in our lives. And I don't mean that we always feel happiness all the time, wonderful peace of mind, etc., etc. But no matter what is happening, if we've gotten the worst piece of news in the world this morning, we still have a deep down radical reason for being glad which is that Jesus Christ has already overcome the world. He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the day is going to come when we're going to see that even this terrible thing, which is not making us feel happy or glad at the moment, fits into a pattern for good. We don't give God the agenda of how we are going to live a holy life. We accept God's agenda. One of the most smiling people that I know, a young woman by the name of Linda, who lives in Massachusetts, she just always has this beautiful, radiant smile from ear to ear. And she's a single woman in her late 30s, I would think. And I said to her one day, because I happened to be writing a book on the subject of loneliness, I said, Linda, you must have had a lot of experience in loneliness. And she looked at me, in a very perplexed way, and she said, no, I, I really don't think I have. Why do you ask? Well, I said, you're single. And I'm always having young people talk to me about their loneliness because they're single and they want to get married. And she just laughed and she said, well, it's true that I'm single. But she said, you know, I don't have any agenda of my own. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I'm just open for God's agenda. She said, I wake up in the morning just excited to think, I wonder what God has on his agenda for me today. Now, that is the secret of happiness. Trust and obey. She believes that God really does have joy in mind for her. She does what he tells her to do that day. And as the old song says, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Okay, now, point one. A single aim. God's agenda should be our only aim. And I think one of the great pitfalls that we see so often fallen into nowadays by Christians is having a fixed idea of what God wants for us, a fixed notion of what real spirituality is all about, which really doesn't have anything to do with what I find in this book. And I certainly want to encourage you to challenge me about anything that I've said last night or this morning in the question and answer period this afternoon. You have your chance. I mean to back up everything I say from this book. And if I cannot do this, I expect to be challenged. And unfortunately, we've got a lot of Christians who don't saturate themselves in this book. They saturate themselves with what comes at them from the world. Don't let the world squeeze you. But the world is not just squeezing us nowadays, as it was even back in Paul's day, or he wouldn't have had to write this to the Romans. The world is bludgeoning us with nonsense, with garbage, with rubbish. And we all know this. We are very aware of it. There's never been such a powerful influence in, this, in the history of humanity as television. It just comes at us with this powerful, subliminal message. Do your own thing. 
Have it your way. Do what feels good. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. You owe it to yourself, etc., etc., etc. That is garbage. What is my aim as a Christian? God's agenda. The will of God. To please God. To do what he wants me to do. To trust and obey. Now we can go back to scriptures and find some examples of what I'm talking about. This having something else in mind that we are going to demand of God. For example, do you remember when a woman followed Jesus down the street and she yelled out loudly in front of the crowd, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that suckled you. Now this woman had this wonderful idea of how spiritual the work was that God had given to Mary. And I'm sure that deep down in her heart this woman thought, now if God had given me that job, then I could really have served him. But God only gave that job to one woman in the whole history of the world. And so this woman who was saying that could think to herself, poor little me, I'll never be able to do what Mary did. And there might be somebody sitting here thinking, poor little me, I'll never be able to do what this wonderful woman at the piano did. I'll never be able to stand up there and speak like Elizabeth Elliot. I'd love to write a book. I'll never be able to do that. I can't be the hostess with the mostess. I can't do this. I can't do that. And all the other things. And so you can exonerate yourself, excuse yourself, and say, well, you know, I was behind the door when the gifts were given out. So I don't have to serve the Lord the way so-and-so does. What did Jesus say to that woman? He said, blessed rather is the one who hears the word of God and does it. He brought sentimentality right down to earth. And we have a lot of notions about what constitutes spiritual ministry. And we'd love to do what Billy Graham does or somebody else that we think of who has a spiritual ministry. And God says, that is none of your business. I have given you a job to do. You do that job. And you do it for me. And who knows who's going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. Not going to be the person that the world was looking at. Another example. Uh, Paul says, or Jesus said to the Pharisees, I think it was. He said, this is an evil generation that looks for a sign. What's wrong with looking for signs? We're being told all the time, this miracle happened over here and another miracle happened over here. And look what so-and-so is doing here. And look at the healings that are going on. People are even raising the dead. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And you're sitting there thinking, well, I've never had any miracles in my life. Jesus said, it is an evil generation that looks for a sign. God can give signs when he wants to. Of course, don't misunderstand me. I worship a God of miracles. He is the God who could make the sun stand still, make iron swim, and turn water into wine. That is my God forever and ever. But I am not going to stand up here this morning, ladies and gentlemen, and tell you that you have a right to expect a miracle. You do not have such a right. God is sovereign. If God knows that you need a miracle, my God shall supply all your need. But don't you go banging on heaven's door saying, Lord, I got to have a miracle. He might be saying to you just what he said to Paul. 
My grace is all you need. Do you really know what you need? Does the little child know what he needs when he comes to his father and says, Can I have a popsicle and it's five o'clock in the afternoon? His father, if he's got half a brain, is going to say, No, it'll spoil your supper. And the little kid says, You don't love me. You never give me anything. You ever heard that? That's the way we act with God, isn't it? God's refusals are among his greatest mercies. Just as the refusal of a loving father is what is going to make that child. But that child doesn't understand it. Of course he doesn't. And the father can't reason it out with him. He just says, no, son, I'm sorry. You can't have another popsicle. You can't have a popsicle at five o'clock in the afternoon. Another example, Satan, when he came to Jesus in the wilderness, what did he tempt him to do? Miracles. Make these stones into bread. You're hungry. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. So he came to him at his weakest point, And he said, you can turn these stones into bread. What did Jesus say to him? It is written. He went back to this book. Even Jesus took his authority from this book in order to beat Satan. And when you have problems with temptations, you go back to it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And Jesus never did one single miracle to save himself. And then Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world and all the powers thereof. If all he would do would just be fall down and worship him. And Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. It is written. And then he said, well, just jump off the temple pinnacle here. He said, the angels can bear you up. And of course they could have. Satan was speaking the truth. But Jesus refused to do a miracle that would save himself. And if Jesus refused to do miracles for himself, he's going to refuse to do miracles for you and me when he knows in his sovereign love that what we need is grace or patience. A lady came to a preacher one time. She said, oh, preacher, oh, brother, please pray for me for patience. I need patience. And so he put his arm on her shoulder and he said, oh, Lord, please send this woman all kinds of tribulation." And she said, wait a minute, that, that wasn't what I asked. And he said, didn't you ask for patience? And she said, yes. It is written that tribulation worketh patience. God does not drop tribulation in patience into your lap. God must put you through a test. He must put you through some kind of a meat grinder. If you really want patience. This idolatry of celebrities. Where does it come from? Well, straight from the world, doesn't it? Pure secular thinking. What is my aim? If my aim is a single eye for the glory of God, I'll do anything, even if nobody ever notices it, even if I never get any medals for it, even if I never get commended or rewarded. I don't have to look at a celebrity and say, if only I could be like that. Well, that's the same sin that the woman committed when she said this other woman was so blessed. You want somebody else's spiritual experience. You wonder why God hasn't given you a particular experience that somebody else has written a book about or told a testimony about. 
or sung a song about. You haven't had that. What's on God's agenda for you? Ministry. What does ministry mean? It means service. Has God given you an opportunity to serve? Yes, he's given all you women opportunity to serve him in the kitchen. You ought to have a little sign up over the sink. Divine service conducted here daily. I'm not kidding. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink or anything else, do it for the glory of God. What did Jesus say? Inasmuch as you have done it for the least of these, my brethren, you've done it for me. Will you be a living sacrifice in your kitchen, in the garage, in your workplace, in school, in the backyard, as well as in church? If you do it for one of the least of these, the little child that needs his nose wiped, the baby that needs his diaper changed, the old woman next door who needs her toenails cut, who is going to do those jobs? Christians. This whole room should be a bunch of people on whom anybody can call because we will do anything. And we're not going to ask for a medal. You remember Peter, he had his own agenda for Jesus too. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. But that wasn't required of Peter. God wasn't asking, Jesus was not asking him to be crucified. Jesus was not asking him to be imprisoned. That was something that God asked of Paul and Peter later. But at that time, that was not on God's agenda. The truth was, Peter had his own idea of doing something heroic. And what happened? He chickened out because of a little servant girl putting the finger on him and saying, you're one of those, you're one of his disciples. And he said, no, I'm not. I don't even know what you're talking about. He was ready to die for Jesus, but he was not ready to be embarrassed. What's your agenda? You should have a single aim for the glory of God. To do his will. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Number two, and I'm taking this passage from Titus 2, Titus 1, I referred to I'm not sure if I did refer to Titus last night, but anyway, in Titus 1, we have Paul teaching his disciple, Titus, how he is to teach godliness. Point two is an unimpeachable character. Remember that the title of this talk is Set Apart. We are set apart because we have a single aim and we are to be people of unimpeachable character. A character which will not disqualify us. In other words, to impeach a president is to disqualify him. To be of unimpeachable character means that we will not be disqualified. That we do not deny in our lives what we profess with our mouths. And I wish we had time to go into all of this first chapter, 
and part of the second in, in real depth. But you can study this for yourselves from verse 5 in Titus 1 to verse 14, in, well, to the end of chapter 2. Might as well read all of Titus 1 and 2, but we, won't, we don't have time to go into that all this morning. But Paul says to Titus in verse 5, My intention in leaving you behind in Crete was that you should set in order what was left over, and in particular should institute elders in each town. Now, obviously, Paul and Titus had been to, to Crete. They had been preaching. There were now believers, and these believers were going to have to form a church. And this young man, Titus, was left with the huge responsibility of appointing elders in that church, finding the men who were responsible, who could be the examples to the rest of the church and take responsibility to train them in godliness. Now, what kind of men qualify for the position of being examples to the rest of the world? I don't speak to you men this morning as though every one of you is supposed to be an elder in your church. Undoubtedly, some of you are. But every man should be aiming at the qualifications of an elder because they are simply the qualifications of what makes godly manhood or manly godliness. And he says they should be men of unimpeachable character. That's the first thing he says. And then he says faithful to his one wife, the father of children who are believers, who are not under no imputation of loose living and are not out of control. You fathers are responsible to bring your children under control. I read you the passage last night about God's judgment on Eli because he failed to do that. And he goes on, not overbearing or short-tempered, not drinkers, not fighters, money grubbers, but hospitable, right-minded, temperate, just, devout, self-controlled. He must adhere to true doctrine. Then he says there are all too many, especially among Jewish converts, who are out of all control. They talk wildly and lead men's minds astray. Such men must be curbed. Now I want to speak, I'm going to emphasize two things out of this passage. And I'm not sure how much I'll get in talk number one this morning, or some may have to spill over into the second talk. It's a little difficult to separate all of this out. But let's think about this word faithfulness. What does it mean to be a faithful Christian, a faithful man or woman? Well, it means, to begin with, honest, doesn't it? Somebody who is a man or a woman of his or her word. If a man says, I'll do it for you, if he's a Christian, you ought to be able to expect that he is going to do exactly that. And this brings me to the business of serving God. If God doesn't give you what you think of as a spiritual job, such as Mike's story has, or the song leader, or the pianist, or the visiting speaker, if you're a plumber... What is a Christian plumber? Well, he's not a man who works with a particular kind of Christian tools or with particularly Christian drains. He is a Christian who is a plumber, that's all. I am a Christian writer. That doesn't mean that I write about particular subjects and limit myself only to certain spiritual subjects. I may write about anything in the world, but I bring to my writing the vision of a Christian. And that Christian plumber must bring to his plumbing the vision of a Christian. In other words, 
If you ask that man to come and do a job at your house and he says, I will be there this afternoon, you have a right to expect that if he's a Christian, he will be there this afternoon. And you also have a right to expect that he's going to do the job that you ask him to do and he's going to do it right and he's going to charge you a fair price. A faithful man. A man of his word. It also means he is a dependable man. And one of the tragedies of modern life is that people are not dependable. I have a friend who is the wife of a president of a Christian college. She has told me that a big part of her job is entertainment, and she has to entertain students and faculty and administration and trustees and visiting supporters. And she said, I can't believe how undependable people are. I send out a nice printed invitation with RSVP at the bottom. I don't get any answer at all from some of the people. And lo and behold, they turn up for the dinner. And other people who have RSVP'd and said, yes, I'm coming, they don't come and they don't call. Now, these are Christian people we're talking about. Does that seem like a ridiculously trivial detail to mention as having something to do with God's agenda, with holiness? No detail is too small. Jesus said, he that is faithful in the little things, I will make ruler over bigger things. He that is dishonest in a small thing, Jesus said, will be dishonest in a big thing. And I saw Gary Hart on an interview on television at Harvard University And one student said to him, Mr. Hart, do we have a right to expect that you would be more faithful to the promises that you make to this country if you became president than you have been to the promises that you made to your wife? Which I thought was a very good question. And Mr. Hart's reply was, my promises to my wife are nobody's business but mine. And I thought, if a man is dishonest in what certainly was not a little thing, how could we trust him with a bigger thing? And if we don't put it into practice in the little things at home and the little things that not even your wife or your husband or your children are going to notice, things that you know you can get away with, humanly speaking, how are we ever going to be faithful to God? The true test of a man's faithfulness is what he does when he thinks nobody's looking. I went to a Christian boarding school where our headmistress used to say to us again and again and again, don't go around with a Bible under your arm if you didn't sweep under the bed. She did not want a lot of pious talk coming out of a messy room. God's agenda means faithfulness. It means that a man keeps his promises to his wife and a woman keeps her promises to her husband. Of course, those vows that you have pronounced before God and these witnesses in the wedding ceremony are deeply solemn and unbreakable vows. In God's book, there is no fire escape. 
It doesn't say as long as we're better and richer and healthier. It says for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, till death us do part. Till what us do part? Till death. And it doesn't say as long as we both shall love, but it says as long as we both shall live. Now, I hear Christian people just taking the view that divorce is an option nowadays. Everybody's doing it. Christian leaders are doing it. Why shouldn't I do it? And usually the excuse is incompatibility. Or, well, we had grown apart. You know, this is not the man I married. I don't feel the same way about him that I used to feel then. It's not working, was what my nephew, who unloaded his wife and two little children when the second child was one week old, he said to me, it wasn't working. What does God say? This is a covenant before God and these witnesses that you are going down this course, which is a total, radical, irrevocable commitment. That's why discipleship is compared to marriage, because it is irrevocable. You don't put your hand to the plow and then look back. This is a course that you choose. You stake your life, come hell or high water, and you're going to live with this woman or this man until death. It is a commitment. Now, your promises to your wife on the little things. Yes, I'll be home for dinner at 6 o'clock. Now, occasionally, it does happen that it is absolutely impossible to get home at 6 o'clock, and it is absolutely impossible to make a phone call. You can get stuck on a highway because of an accident or something. There's nothing you can do. But how many of you husbands really take seriously the fact that your wife works hard to get that meal ready for you, to get it on time, and she wants to serve it hot and not to have it all dried up and the souffle flat or whatever? And you don't bother to call. You come strolling in 20 minutes late or an hour and a half late. The children are hungry. Maybe your wife has gone ahead with the children, which I think is legitimate and reasonable to do because she has other people to think about besides her husband. But just a little thing like keeping a promise and being on time for dinner. Or, yes, I will fix that faucet on Saturday. Am I stepping on anybody's toes? If you're here, but you haven't fixed the faucet, why my advice to you is if you really want to be holy and fill God's agenda, then you go home and fix the faucet this afternoon. You don't have to go home right now. A wife's faithfulness to her husband involves not just sexual faithfulness. It involves being obedient to God in regarding her husband as her head. Because the scripture does not say that the husband ought to be the head of the wife. The scripture does not say that. What does it say? The husband is the head of the wife. You guys don't have any choice whatsoever about that matter. You don't tell me, well, but I don't really feel that I can do as good a job as my wife. She's more spiritual than I am. She has a better background than I am. God is not asking you to choose whatever suits your temperament. God makes the statement, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And so the wife is to submit to her husband, not because he's smarter than she is or better looking or more intelligent or stronger. He may be all of those things. He may be none of them. She is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. 
I do not submit to Lars because he's always right. I can tell you he is better looking than I. He's a whole lot bigger. He's a whole lot stronger. And he's a whole lot smarter than I am in certain areas. But he is not always right. I am to submit to Lars because he holds an office. He holds an office that I did not give him, that he did not earn, but that is a divine assignment. A man or a woman of unimpeachable character is a faithful man or woman. When a wife marries a husband, she accepts his destiny. Just recently we were at a seminary and I talked to some of the seminary wives and I find that the same thing happens there that I hear about in other seminaries. All of a sudden these wives, halfway through the seminary course that their husband is taking, decide that they don't feel called to be a missionary or they don't feel called to be a pastor's wife. They've got to have a special, separate and individual call. Well, what if they got a call not to be a pastor's wife and he gets a call to be a pastor? What happens? chaos and God knew that it could never work that way so I say to these women look you married this man you accepted his destiny when you accepted his name you go where he's going to go you don't have to get a call from God God called you to be his wife now if he's going to be a pastor God is calling you to be a pastor's wife God is calling you to be a missionary's wife God has long ago called you to be the wife of this particular man with this particular man's set of sins do you ever think about that? You married a sinner. And so did he. God help us all. There isn't anything else to marry. <laughs> what did you think you were getting? Well, if part of the surprise package is that you got a sinner, why, so what else is new? I could have told you that. A faithful wife accepts her destiny as this particular man's wife with his particular set of sins and weaknesses and peculiarities and strengths and gifts. And I've had three different husbands with very different sets of peculiarities and weaknesses and strengths and gifts. I accept their destiny. A faithful man or woman is faithful to the children. You don't make promises that you do not fulfill. I hear the most outrageous threats made by parents. I heard a woman in the airport with a poor little screaming boy saying, if you don't shut up, I'm going to stuff you into that waste can over there. Now, that is a lie. You know, to me, that is a hideous thing to do to a child. She is not going to stuff him into that waste can. And that little child is being trained every day of his life to believe that his parents are liars. Because they say, I'm going to spank you if you do that. And they don't spank him. I'm going to stuff you into that thing. You're not going to get any supper tonight. They are destroying daily the moral fabric of that child. They are not faithful parents. Lars has been giving me signals back there. I have exactly one minute left, I think. So we will go on with this. If a father promises his child that he's going to take him fishing on Saturday... And then suddenly remembers that Saturday is the day of the World Series. We're not going fishing. What is he doing to that child? My parents taught us, if you make a commitment, you get there if you have to crawl on your stomach. You fulfill that commitment. You must keep your word. I don't care what the price is.
You made a promise to a little child. And everything in that little child's life depends on that fulfillment, on that faithfulness of his father. If we are set apart, we have a single aim, which is obedience to God. We must be people of unimpeachable character. Dishonesty disqualifies us. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.